from VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast Friday Edition. Yes. <laughs> it's been a long week. It's been a long We're week. Nearing you know, it's, 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 a, it's scary the extent to which hearing you say those words has made the weekend feel real to me, Adam. <laughs> I know. Isn't it? It's like, like, oh, good. It's it's the weekend. We hope you all feel uh, the same way. Yeah, we do. Yes. <laughs> um, so I thought, you know, we, we would do a little bit of a fun conversation that is a, a rehash of a combo that Zach, you and I had in the early days of COVID. Um, and sort of check in on some stuff. And now that we've got Joanna here, I thought we'd get her take as well on uh, basically the migration of sort of people in the restaurant and bar industry to the burbs um, and what that means. And, and, beyond. and beyond. <laughs> and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. And we had thought, you know, that, that we were going to see more of that. And it seems like we have. Um, we got a fun interview for this this episode. But, uh, you know, it, it feels like the right time to talk about it again. And like, did, are we seeing what we thought we would have, we would see, especially as COVID hopefully is winding down that people left cities for the suburbs and open cool shit, <laughs> you know, do, do you guys feel like we, we saw more of that or less of that than we thought we would when people were sort of making that prediction early in COVID? I think we've seen more of that. Like, I think we saw people, I, I certainly saw people like leave the city just like, uh, to move to places outside of the city and, and maybe outside of New York, like Hudson Valley and places like that. But I'm actually surprised at how many like Psalms and people in the industry kind of following suit and opening places um, in that path as well. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we thought maybe we would see that driven by, by some, you know, by restaurateurs and chefs to some extent. Um, but yeah, I've been surprised at, as Joanna said, at the number of sort of, in particular, wine uh, professional-led mm-hmm. enterprises that have that have expanded around the country, and I think I think it's like this interesting piece that I I don't think I fully understood when we last talked about this, which is like the part of it that made total sense to me was that if you were the kind of person who had aspired to open your own wine bar or restaurant or even bottle shop, that doing so in a big city was just getting to be a cost prohibitive for a lot of folks Mm -hmm. and also just like there's a shitload of competition right and you know whether it's in seattle new york you know san francisco wherever you're fighting for yes a a big a big market potentially but you're also fighting against a lot of competitors and if you went to a small to a suburban site uh you know an ex-urban site or just it's even a you know a smaller city or whatever you probably had a lot less competition. And so so that piece of it made total sense to me. I think the thing that I didn't anticipate and, and I think, you know, I was surprised by is the extent to which some of these ventures could really even be supported in some really pretty small communities that, mm-hmm. that you could be a, a seemingly a relatively successful operator of whatever the kind of venture, especially if it had multiple dimensions to it, you know, you were a bottle shop and a part-time wine bar, and maybe you also sold, you know, some, you know, simple, but like kind of high-end food goods and stuff like that in a lot of different places. Because the truth is that like the, the market for those kinds of experiences, those kinds of goods are, is not concentrated exclusively in cities because the kind of people who like those things have also moved all over the country, right. have, have moved out of big cities, not just because of COVID, although in part because of that. And there's demand for that kind of experience in places that I think a few years ago we might not have expected. But also now there's 
you know, e-commerce and direct to consumer as well. Mm -hmm. So it makes it even more possible to make, make that jump happen. Sure. What do you think, Adam? Has it, has it surprised you or has it been kind of what you expected? It's kind of been what I've expected. I feel like the people, like it's, I, I sort of feel this way, you know, I, I have this theory just about COVID in general, um, which is that I think. <laughs> whoa, 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 careful here. <laughs> It's not a fucking hoax, y'all. I'm not about to talk about Invermectin. Like, why did we have to take it there? <laughs> I don't know, because you said you had a theory about COVID. And I just, this I isn't a Joe Rogan it. podcast. We're not doing pseudoscience. Yeah, for one it, thing, we don't have like, that kind of listenership, unfortunately. Right. If, if we do, y'all. If, I've, if, 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 if there are some of you who listen to us and Joe Rogan, you can listen to Joe Rogan. Anyways, um, so what I'm just saying is, I mean, I'm not trying to give medical advice. I'm trying to talk about my theory that what I think is all that COVID did is accelerate for the people that were already thinking about this decision, this decision. I don't think yeah. – I actually don't really believe from all of the conversations I've had, it really caused a lot of people to leave who who hadn't already thought about it, hmm. right? Like – there was something in the back of your mind and you're even seeing this by like real estate data now and stuff that like it's starting to pull back in the suburbs and it's getting hot again in the cities. And, but I think for those that were already thinking about it and it, you know, it accelerated that decision. And I think that decision actually wasn't accelerated. They weren't thinking about the decision because of COVID. They were thinking about that decision because of cost. Yeah. Right. Like it's a lot easier to open things in the suburbs where, you know, real estate is much more affordable and there are more opportunities and, you know, there are large suburbs outside of all the major cities and they are hungry audiences for, you know, interesting bars and restaurants yeah. and you can become the thing in that community or one of the things in that community, yeah. which I think, you know, people who recognize that and then are all, you know, also okay with the suburb lifestyle mm -hmm. uh, really can get behind. Like you just have to accept that in the suburbs, you're not going to have like, or you won't have as many opportunities for like all the cool bars you'd hit up after work for the shift drinks. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you also have to be okay with like a different kind of staff, right? Yeah. Like, you know, and we talked about this with our interview, you know, him looking for the staff that he's hiring is, you know, at his new, his new venture in, in upstate New York is very different than staff you could, you would have access to in New York City. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so those are challenges that I just feel like everyone, really, really has to think through before they do this, which is why I think the only people who did this because of COVID were people who are already thinking through what that would look like. For sure. And people who are going to do it, you know, now in the, in the waning days of COVID, hopefully, um, are also thinking through all those things because if not, it's crazy, man. <laughs> like, cause opening a restaurant or a bar is hard anywhere. <laughs> Right. And so, and then doing it in, in, in a, you know, a, a place where you may have to educate, like, this is why I'm charging this or this, is what this is. It's just not a smaller market. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going to be, it's not gonna be easy. So, um, yeah, I think you have to, you're doing it for a lifestyle change, right? Like it's mm -hmm. the same reason people move to suburbs in general. Like it's a lifestyle change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it, or, or just like, I, I think, as you said, you know, it's, it's not just a lifestyle change. I think that's a part of it, but it's also maybe also a, a chance to do a thing that just is not viable in this totally city, right like totally. like some of you know some of what uh you, you know paul your interview talks about or what other people we've talked about just could not exist in in any city because you you don't have the space literally you mm -hmm. don't have the kind of you know you, you're just in a different vibe right and, and it's interesting that we that you mentioned and i think this is a good point that that should be emphasized that the experience of i would imagine being a, a restaurant owner operator or even just employee 
in one of these suburban or exurban locations is functionally very different than what we think of the restaurant industry in a big city, right? Like it's a totally different, probably different kinds of people, different stages in life, potentially, you know, with different sort of desires, but it is like an interesting opportunity to, for, for people who just might want to have, you know, a serious restaurant uh, experience as a, as an, as an employee, but just, but don't want to deal with living in a city. Mm-hmm. How does that is to yeah. believe? <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, but I, I do think that you're right. I'm, I guess the thing I was bringing up is I wasn't thinking it was just for the lifestyle, but that it is totally, you have to accept that it will be a different lifestyle too, is what I mean. 100%. Right? Yeah. It's like, cool. Like I can afford to do this, but then am I going to be okay with the fact that, you know, there will the, be, the bars I, close be other at midnight or whatever. Right, the bars close at midnight and like there's no there's no local dive for me to, you know, for my chef to go get a shot and a beer after work or whatever it is, right? Like that it's just a different thing. But yes, then I think the opportunities are really rich for lots of people, right? Like, you know, and again, you can be the thing mm-hmm. and that's yeah. that's a really cool opportunity, right? There's, you know, the cities that we both live in are very cutthroat. Yeah. And you know, it's not just Seattle and New York are not the only cutthroat cities in America. Most of them <laughs> no, are, it's true. you know, um, yeah, but it's the, also, I the think the mean streets of Seattle. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> into that. But I was going to say, I think the, other, the last thing about this that I wanted to say was like, I also think that what's interesting too, is that it not only presents like kind of different opportunities and, and a lower maybe cost of entry for operators and, and a different kind of lifestyle for people who work there, but it's also like, in addition to what you said about kind of, you know, having ready audiences in, in these locations, a lot of times that, that, you know, might want um, an experience that they otherwise might think they have to go to a, a bigger city to get. It's also like an opportunity to, to create a kind of dining experience that might have, a, you might have a harder time make work, like make work in a, in a city, something that is maybe a little bit more, how would I describe this? Like that, that's a little more of a hybridization of like, maybe you do some fine dining on the weekends and your casual counter service during the week, or like, not that you can't do those things in cities, but I think there's, there's just like your, your venture, whatever it is, has to, I think necessarily meet different and, and broader kinds of demands in a, in one of these uh, communities than just, we are a, you know, high-end French restaurant. Like, like that kind of thing, I think is right. hard to sell. But if you can offer a few different kinds of experiences under one roof over the course of a week or a month or a year, I think that's how these things can be really successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think also in the best cases, these can be destinations for, for people to visit, like not outside of the community. Sure. Yeah. Like, I think, I, I, and I think that that's like, so I think it's a really good point and it's, it, Definitely is a, a revenue, um, you know, oh, God. why have my notifications have to go off as I'm talking? <laughs> it's just like so rude of me. You guys, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you can um, start again with that was a good point. No, you guys don't like the, the blooper. <laughs> um, the blooper. Um, so, I mean, basically, yeah, I, what I was trying to say was I think it's a, it's a, it's a good point because, you know, I always obviously look for that when I'm going somewhere but oh my god they have this like yeah, cool destination spot that a lot of people write about and it's definitely a, a, you know why a lot of places get pressed too you know we write about the places that exist in in smaller markets because it's like cool mm-hmm. like oh they have a great x bar or i mean like i always think about one of my favorite um 
like beer bars in the country is this place called uh the brazen head it's like or sorry the bull's head mm-hmm. it's uh not the brazen head the bull's head which is in like um Lidditz, pennsylvania like this small little town in pennsylvania and they like fully recreated a british pub because the guy's re- like from london and he's really into it and he decided to like buy an old hotel in this tiny town and the bar is incredible and so clearly he's gotten a lot of press too because it exists in this small town um but like it also clearly has a local following so i think you have to you have to know when you're doing it that like you will get that you know outside of the of the town traffic because you'll be the the thing but that you know you also have to obviously become a local spot because that's how you'll have your consistent revenue so like you have to become a spot for both Mm -hmm. um which is really uh you know, a, a different kind of restaurant model, but I think it's really exciting. And that's, I think what, you know, what, what our, what our good buddy Paul Brady is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so Paul was a Psalm uh, in the city for a really long time and then moved out of New York and now is in Beacon running a really cool winery slash wine bar. Um, so why don't we hear my interview with him and then we'll get mm-hmm. back to the wine. Sounds good. From Five Years New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter, and this is a Friday conversation. I'm chatting here with Paul Brady of Paul Brady Wine, but also Up North Shit, a former song. Paul, I've known you for like, what, a few, a few years now, right? No, whatever it was that we grabbed that drink at Dante. Must be two or three years. A couple, couple years back, I think. Yeah. yeah. So um, the reason we wanted to have this conversation was because... Uh, you're a you're long head listener, first time interviewer mm-hmm. on, on the podcast. Uh, but you, uh, I, I love when we've kind of had this back and forth with some of the episodes that we've done. And you reach out to me, being like, "Hey, I heard that episode you did about sort of psalms uh, and beverage professionals leaving the industry uh, and going to do things in smaller towns, different places." And you know, I'd love to talk to you about it. And so I said, "Okay, cool. Let's let's make that happen when your thing opens." And it just has, right? It just about to, yeah. Awesome. So, uh, so first of all, former Psalm, give me give give the listeners a little bit about your background. Sure. So my first wine uh, job in wine in New York City goes back to 2010, 2011, okay. sometime around then, and that was at Brooklyn Winery. I started there as you a, were at Brooklyn Winery. Yeah, real early days. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I uh, wonder if we interacted at some point then. It's entirely possible. Totally. Yeah, I was there for right about a year, um, sort of doing a little bit of everything. Okay. Uh, moved on from there to Terroir Wine Bar, mm-hmm. um, and then I at that time, Terroir and Hearth Restaurant in the East Village were, yeah. were the same company, and I worked as a manager at Hearth Restaurant. From there, went on to <clears throat> manage a, a short-lived wine bar on the Upper East Side called ABV. For, I know ABV, yeah. For, yeah, yeah ju- just for a minute there, and then I uh, had to take some time off uh, to for some uh, personal stuff, and and then came back to New York City after um, spending some time at home in Michigan, and just needed a job right away, and I wasn't really psyched about going back to be a restaurant manager mm-hmm. and working like you know sixty eighty hours a week, so I. I was lucky and grabbed a server position at the time at Gramercy Tavern, so I had a little more flexibility, yeah. and that was a great experience for a couple of years. From there, went on to work as a, a sommelier at Rouge Tomat, the, oh, the yeah. Chelsea location, and then there was a there was a, like a harvest and a couple stages in between that uh, and my next New York City uh, sommelier job, which was at Temple Court, the Colicchio restaurant 
down yeah. in the Beekman Hotel. And then I sort of finished that stint with Crafted Hospitality off at Craft as a floor mm. som. And that was all before I took the job uh, as the brand ambassador with the New York Wine and Grape Foundation. Interesting. So it's interesting, like just listening to your history, uh, I'm sure some listeners would also make this connection to others who, you know, are not based in New York may not, but I can sort of see how all of these things you've done influence what you do now based on the people I know who are at those places, um, sort of your connection to New York state, your connection to sort of like, you know, entrepreneurship, but also, you know, unheralded varietals in a lot of ways. I think it, is, it makes a lot of sense. So, um, so you go to the New York, uh, great foundation, become sort of the ambassador of New York wine. Um, and how long were you there for? Uh, just about two years. Okay, cool. Yeah. How challenging was that? It was definitely challenging. It, it, you know, working at a nonprofit is is always challenging, yeah, I, yeah. I'm sure. Um, and you're also, you are, you know, I was in charge of a marketing program that was called New York Drinks New York. Okay. And there's about 50 wineries from across the entire state that, you know, pay into that program. Mm-hmm. So you're, you know, you're really managing a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. Of producers, and they all you know they all want the same thing, which is sales, yeah, so my job was essentially to uh market the wine you know come up with marketing strategies and uh work with the trade in New York City, uh, recruiting trade to come on trips uh throughout the various uh viticulture regions throughout mm-hmm. New York state um they would send me all over the place to do seminars and um uh, you know wrote a lot of content and just did a lot of educational outreach to mm. both consumers and the trade again just really for the most part working with those 50 odd wineries mm-hmm. that were in that New York Drinks New York program but okay. they also have an uh, an export program which is marketing uh, the wines of the wineries who do export wines throughout the world oh, interesting or those who want to so we we go to inter- we went when i was there uh, to international trade shows like and the expo like stuff like that exactly so could I maybe say that you're the reason that finally New York City Psalms think that the Finger Lakes especially is fucking cool all of a sudden? Because I feel like when I was initially in, you know, getting into wine in New York, like no Psalm, they'd be like, oh, this is New York. No, no, that's not good. That's not good. And then, you know, as we were starting Vine Pair, we started talking about New York, Virginia, et cetera. And I'd still have Psalms be like, and this is 2014, like, oh, no. Not not New York, and now I feel like every song's like I'm making a wine in New York. <laughs> like I'm, I'm hanging out upstate. I love the Finger Lakes, and I'm doing harvest. Like that's all you. Uh, <laughs> uh, not a chance. I I, I I wish I had an answer to that. Um, it did seem to switch though, or is that just me? Well, I think that little by little, the the various viticulture regions throughout the east coast are are gaining more traction yeah they really are and and i think it's there's not one reason um but i you know like you said earlier my sort of resume indicates that i went from place to place kind of always making sure that i could work with these wines so going to a place like terroir where paul greco who comes from canada you know paul always had he was canadian Huh. Yeah, he's from Toronto. Uh, he always had Ontario wines yeah. uh, on his various lists, and actually, that was my foray into New York wine was was Canadian wine because I, coming from Michigan, I mean, I could see Canada from the end of the street that I grew up on, and um, I, I think the first dry Riesling I ever had was from Ontario, believe it or not, Interesting. Um, just from drinking those wines in my early twenties, 
And it was those Canadian, uh, my Canadian sort of winemakers and psalms and stuff like that who said, oh, you're moving to New York? You got to look for New York wines. So it was sort of via the Ontario cool climate wines that I found first the Finger Lakes and then the rest of the state. And again, just bounced from place to place, always trying to work with and, and under wine directors who appreciated those wines and were excited about those wines and looked at them as an opportunity and not a responsibility. Interesting. Very cool. Yeah, it does feel like, I mean, do you see that as well, that there seems to have been this all of a sudden shift in in sort of maybe not just New York wine culture, but as you're saying, like Northeastern wine culture, et cetera, about, hey, like, let's look outside of just what's happening on the West Coast and concentrate on what's happening on the East Coast and getting really excited about these wines? I think there is, you know, the wines themselves are are definitely yeah, doing a good bit of that work. Yeah, um, they are. So they're getting better. Yes, they're they're certainly better than they were even ten years ago, uh, and that's for a whole bunch of different reasons. But you know, these are challenging climates. Yeah. to grow grapes in, and the growers get better every year as new research comes out. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the the most striking example of that would be Cabernet Franc and just okay. how much better the growers are getting at managing uh, those vineyards and getting getting that fruit to ripen uh, more in, in better balance than, than in years before. So uh, this is not what this podcast is supposed to be about, but I'm curious because you have such a background in the Finger Lakes. Um, do you I got I to gotta stop you and I got <laughs> this is I ran into this all the time. The like the Wine and Grape Foundation job was the entire state, not just the Finger Lakes. I know, and the Finger Lakes, uh, the Finger Lakes, <laughs> the Finger Lakes producers would always, you know, look at me and be like, "So, you know, for the Finger Lakes and the Finger Lakes and the Finger Lakes," and I'm like, I, "New York, not just okay. Finger Lakes." Sorry, Adam. <laughs> no, but you were talking about Cabernet Franc. I'm just curious. Yeah. Do you feel like there's they're getting better at it up there? Because there's also a desire to sort of have a red varietal that they want the region to be known for, besides just Riesling. Uh, I think that they certainly everybody understood that red wine was important and you, and and it behooved you to have some mm-hmm. at, at your winery. And then Cornell really stepped up and and did a good bit of research in terms of how to manage the Cap Franc vineyards in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, so that uh, is one of the reasons that that grape has sort of taken off in quality up there. Hmm. Cool. So you left that. Uh, mm-hmm. We're done talking about the Finger Lakes for the most part, although <laughs> I think are all of the grapes in these wines that you brought with you Finger Lakes grapes? All but one, yeah. The, the, the red wine is 100% uh, Hudson Valley. Oh, cool. So so now you are in the Hudson Valley. Mm-hmm. So you're opening a, a pretty cool project up there. You're in Beacon, mm-hmm. which is a dope little town with one of the best art museums like in the area. Yep. Um, Tell me about it. Like, so, so what was the desire? So you, so you basically, you've done the brand rep ambassador thing. I think also... There's a lot of people who want to be brand ambassadors, I feel like, because you, you think it's like a sexy job. You can go talk about things, but that's got to be very tiring as well because you're probably traveling a lot. Um, so what sort of motivated this change and move into entrepreneurship? Mm-hmm. So I actually moved up to the Hudson Valley before the pandemic. Okay. So I moved up there in 2019. And I used to see your fun pictures of you on the lake. And yeah. I was like, this, this looks beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I got him while the getting was good. Before it got way too overpriced, yep. probably now. Yeah, <laughs> bananas. Um, and, I, you know, I was happily working for the Wine and Grape Foundation at mm-hmm. that time, and, but, you know, was learning more about the region mm-hmm. and more about myself. And it, I did come to a point, again, both uh, still before the pandemic, um, 
during which I realized, okay, it's, it's time for me to go and, and do my own thing. And, yeah. I, and I know what I want to do and I know where I want to do it. Um, the, the brand ambassador job is where I learned sort of all the ins and outs of the different New York state winery licenses Okay, and the farm winery license. We could do an entire podcast on that. It's a really fascinating license. Yeah. Uh, so the, the farm winery license allows you to essentially have a winery. Um, it has to be on a farm. So you have to either have a vineyard or growing something else. Mm -hmm. Um, as long as you have some sort of farm, you can apply for a farm winery license. And, um, with that license, you can also have a satellite tasting room, essentially, is what it is. You could have, like, more than one, too, Yeah, right? Yeah, I think it's up to five. Yeah. Which is crazy. No one has that. But uh, there are uh, some wineries that do have satellite tasting rooms. And so once I learned that, that piqued my interest because I never wanted to just have a a, a retail shop. And uh-huh. not, nothing against that. It just, just wasn't for me. Um, and then I was terrified to open a restaurant because we should all be terrified to open restaurants uh, (laughs) at this time in our lives. Yeah. Um, It's a terrifying career. Yeah. Uh, So once I learned that uh, I could essentially um, partner up with an already existing winery and work in an alternating proprietorship to have winery space, Uh uh, I can then get my own farm winery license and get my own satellite tasting room. And so Beacon was sort of an obvious choice because just taking the train back and forth. Uh, I, I live sort of in the middle of nowhere between Rhinebeck and, and the Taconic. And, but I, I would take the train sometimes to go down to the city to work. And I always noticed hundreds of people got off in Beacon off the train, like way more than any other stop really along that Hudson line. And even like more than, um, what's the town right South of Beacon? Cold Spring. Uh, Cold Spring. Even more than Cold Spring. You know, a lot of people get off in Cold Spring too. Cause there, there is to hike, right? Yeah. Yeah. Breakneck. Um, and, but, but as you said earlier, Beacon's got the museum. Yeah. So that DM museum and then all those trails you have, you know, Mount Beacon is a popular one for people to just city dwellers going up for a day or so, get off the train, cruise around through Beacon, go hike to the top of Mount Beacon. There's a fire tower there. It's a beautiful view. Um, that's a good one. And then there's other more sort of lengthy or challenging trails or whatever in the, right. in the area as well. You have a beautiful hotel too. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple, couple nice hotels there and basically like the Appalachian trail, uh, goes right through that area. Oh, interesting. I didn't yeah. know that. Okay. So you notice they're all getting off the train. You're like, I got to come here. Yeah. It, it just seemed like a, like a, a, as, as good of, as any spot to open something like what I was thinking considering at that time as opposed to somewhere like kingston like i love kingston i love hanging out in kingston kingston's awesome kingston's awesome but there's no train right so agreed like the the west side of the hudson valley is so much different than the east because of its lack of train yeah you know even though we are all talking about how kingston is like the new hotness yeah it is limiting if you don't have a car it sort of has its own ecosystem yeah of of locals and whatnot whereas you know you walk around the the other river towns and it's definitely there's a lot of tourists a lot of tourists and yeah, day yeah, trippers, yeah. yeah how far is beacon uh from hudson probably about an hour and a half or so right so beacon really is a lot closer to the city than it's the closer other, to the city. like hot city on the east side of the river yeah okay. quite a bit closer yeah cool yeah so you decide to open this how long ago uh i put my notice in at the wine and grape foundation sort of like Right. We were, we were at Van Expo in Paris in February of 2020. So it was like, this was 
right before yeah we were starting to heat up it's starting we had plans to go back to provine and and, and of course that got yeah i got canceled and along with everything else so i had already put my notice in sort okay. of before the craziness happened and had you already started applying for the license and things like that? How did you figure out how to do that? So I worked with an attorney, okay. and I would recommend anybody who wants to do this, if you can, do that. Work work with an attorney who specializes in state liquor authority. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's a really lengthy and and, and quite complicated process. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. <laughs> did you raise money? Um, I was fortunate to have family money to, cool. to be able to, to get open. Okay, cool. Um, and so you find the lawyer, you get the license. Mm-hmm. How did you go? Like, where did you want to be in Beacon? What were you thinking when you created the space? So I, I've, I called the realtor who helped me find my house that I had been renting and just asked if he knew any realtors in the Beacon area. And he hooked me up with one and she was fantastic. Kelly Campbell, um, realtor in the Beacon area. And we just, as soon as, I mean, I had to wait a few months because we were in, uh, we were under stay at home orders. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so finally when, when realtors could go out again, we started looking for spaces, uh, sort of in the beacon and cold spring area. And are you downtown beacon? Yeah. We're, our address is main street. And so you can walk from the train very easily. You could, I mean, it's a, the beacon train station is maybe like a 10 minute or so walk to the, where you get to the edge of sort of the main street. Okay. And then from there it'd be like another, you know, eight or 12 minute walk or something used to that yeah Yeah. (laughs) and and there's buses and shuttles and stuff like that okay cool so you find the space yeah and then and then uh and uh, you know to to apply for a liquor license you have to have an address okay so you can get the paperwork going even technically before you sign your lease if if you have if like while you're in negotiations okay so then it took a took a two three months or so of negotiations with the landlord and uh we we signed our lease for November 1st of last year. Okay. Um, so it's taken you then almost a year since mm-hmm. I leased to get open. Oh, yeah. What's, what's that means that took to all build out, yeah. getting everything ready? Mostly build out. Yeah. It was a completely brand new building, blank space. Okay. Um, and so I, again, I, I very lucky uh, found a great contractor and architect, and we, we worked on it together. And, and yeah, construction is totally done now. Um, licenses are all falling into place. We've got, um, uh, we added a tavern license to our farm winery license. So, you know, hypothetically, I could cert, you can do that because you think about it, a lot of wineries that have weddings yeah, and yeah, things yeah. like that. If you need champagne or, or, you know, Tito's vodka or whatever for your wedding, you can add a, a full on premise or a tavern, tavern wine and beer license to your winery license. So we did that. Okay. Um, yeah, so right now, um, you know, we, we've got uh, we have three licenses. One of them is active and in place, so we, we could get open. But um, we're, uh, I'm just, uh, you know, I want it to be right. So, uh, <laughs> so you're waiting. Check, check the website. Any, could be, could be any day, could be next week, could be, could be very, very soon. So, so just, what's it called? It's called Paul Brady Wine. Cool. So Paul Brady Wine is the winery and is also the tasting room. Correct. Obviously, it has yeah. to be. Yeah. Um, and so when someone shows up at Paul Brady Wine and Beacon, what are they going to experience? So the, that's the other cool thing about the farm winery license is with that, you can sell products from any other New York State producer. And that's the whole oh, idea cool. of the license is to promote New York State agriculture, really. Um, so m- when you walk into our, our space, you'll see the bars on the left. Looks just like a regular bar. 
the retail side is on the right and it looks just like a regular wine shop. We have about, I don't know, probably close to 50 different producers stuff between uh, wine, beer and spirits. Oh, cool. Cider. Yeah. So you can sell wine, beer and spirits, but if it's the farm license, you can sell it all together under the same roof. That's really cool. As long as it's New York. As long as it's New York. Yeah. Um, that's really, really cool. And so then will you be doing food? We will be doing food. So kind um, of opening a restaurant, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm trying not to. So, so much so that uh, all our, our food program is really simple. Okay. Uh, again, this goes back to Hearth Restaurant. You might, you guys, remember, I might, love Hearth. Might remember me too. Still, um, when I worked there, the chef de cuisine at the time was a guy named George Caden. Okay. And there was this. It was called the Charcuterie for Two, and it was just this big board of the most beautiful, like local, you know, handcrafted charcuterie, um, all done in house. And it, it's to, to this day, it was my favorite thing ever at hearth. And it came with grilled bread back then. There was like an option to add foie gras. Um, and so that, that's what we're doing. We're, we've, I've been in touch with George and he actually helped me. Oh, awesome. Uh, yeah. He's out in Portland, Oregon now. And, um, that's our entire food program is our board for two. And we're going to, in the beginning, we're going to roll that out only doing it on sort of like the Thursday, Friday, Saturday yeah, nights. Yeah. We have 23 seats. Uh, I think that I can fill 23 seats, uh, you know, on Fridays and Saturday nights and in Beacon, uh, I hope at least. Yeah. And uh, that we will take reservations and we hope to do two seatings a night eventually. And that's, uh, that's, that's what you get. You get the board for two. We have a vegetarian slash pescatarian version as well. Mm-hmm. And all of that is being processed and prepped by Chef Brian Ornoff, who is just down the street. His restaurants are called Kitchen Sink and Myers Old Dutch. And so he's doing all of that processing and prepping. So literally when it shows up to us, all we have to do is put it on boards. That's amazing. And so the goal is to completely eliminate food waste. And that, that stuff is has a pretty good shelf life. Yeah. So what we don't sell on the bar side of things, we can then sell on the retail side of things. Oh, very cool. So when you show up at the bar, will you be just pouring your wines? No, uh, full like wines by the glass list of other producers about, I think, what are we up to? Like six or eight reds, six or eight whites, three or four sparkling, two rosé, two orange wines, couple dessert wines. Will you do because you can cocktails or no? We will. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. As soon as we're able to. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Not not that we're trying to, you know, be a, a cocktail bar, but... Um, is there a cocktail bar in Beacon? Yes. Okay. There is. Uh, probably more than one, but there's one that's pretty pretty cool called uh, Wonder Bar. Okay. It's attached to an old school movie theater. Really cool. Oh, very cool. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we don't want to... We don't want anybody to walk out the door because they can't get a gin and tonic. Right, know, right, We, right, we want to feel like a regular bar. I love that. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So we've talked a lot about this side of the business, but mm-hmm. there's a whole nother side and I'm staring at it, which is the actual wines. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy to me because you're, you're really opening two businesses at the same time, right? You're opening a, a tasting room, not a restaurant, but a, a bar, right? That uh-huh. has all the stuff going on that, that you're going to have to think about, you know, staffing. How's staffing for you, by the way? We, I have a business partner okay. uh, uh, and there have been a couple other consultants who have uh-huh. been helping us get open. Uh, and we just hired two people that will be essentially hourly. Okay. Um, so they are, they both have good resumes in hospitality and wine. Um, so again, I guess, uh, you know, thank, thank the stars that yeah. we were able to find a couple of good people early on. Now, 
how long they will last. We'll see, you know, turnovers quick in, in, in these types of situations, totally. but uh, f- feeling good for the moment. Okay, cool. So you have all of that and everything that comes along with that, but now you also are making wine because mm-hmm. obviously you can't have this license unless you were actually making wine, I would assume. So yes, you do have to make at least one wine by law. <laughs> so, uh, how long has that process been going on and what kind of wine are you making? Cause what I'm staring at right now is at least two wines that are hybrids. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what is your thought process in terms of the wine that you're creating? What did you, what have you wanted to create? Right. Um, yeah, talk to me about it. So I kind of, you know, like, uh, like you guys, I, I've got a bit of a music background mm-hmm. and I sort of approached this, like how you, at least in sort of the, the old school days, how you would produce a record, mm-hmm. you know, or, or produce a, or if you were like the A&R person for a label, it's like, what do you, what do you want? That's not out there right now. Interesting. What are you excited about? What do you have to work with? Um, so essentially I got together with different winemakers who I had a relationship with and just started a conversation, you know, what's available, what, what can we get our, what kinds of grapes can we get our hands on? Mm-hmm. And what's, what are some wines that I think are, would be good and that are maybe missing from the market or um, that, you know, we could stand to make more of. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's sort of how everything came to be both uh, by what we wanted to do and both by, you know, what we had access to. Okay. Very cool. And so the four wines that I have in front of me, are, are they the only four you're making right now? There's actually one more. These are all from the 2020 and actually the white wine is from 2019. Okay. And then um, we're, we're basically making the same wines again in 2021, and we added one more sparkling wine. So we'll have another um, Pet Nat coming uh, next year. Okay. Uh, are these natural wines? Um, I would identify uh, two of them, I think, at least in the fashionable sense as, okay. as natural wine. Um, I think they would they would check those boxes, both the red wine and the Pet Nat. Okay. Um, they're very interesting names. <laughs> I have to say, well, interesting. In the wine business, when somebody says something is interesting, that you that's like the worst thing you could say. Oh no, I think they're cool. I, I think it's just it's like it's not what you would expect at all. Like rock and roll mouth. What does bug dope mean? Bug dope is uh, North Country parlance for insect repellent. Oh, so interesting. I really, I love the names. I think they're really fun. I, I mean, I love, I love the labels. They're, they're really cool. I love the, the beanie hat and then you and the winemaker on the back of each label, I think is super cool. Um, so in this regard, are you just making the wines to supply the tasting room and your shop? Or are you trying to get these into locations all over the state? For the moment, we're happy to keep them, uh, you know, on, on our shelves only. Okay. Um, who knows what the future holds, but, um, you know, we have a very small amount. We have about 50 cases each of each of these okay. labels. And then the new pet net that we made, will have about a hundred cases. Okay. Reason, was there a reason to go higher on that just because you could, or, uh, I found some grapes from a vineyard that I really liked and it and it was a good deal. Again, it's another hybrid grape that I think is perhaps underutilized. And uh, I actually just tasted the not fully finished, hasn't been disgorged yet, but, uh, Tasted the the bottled mm-hmm. uh, as it exists right now, delicious. So very happy. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and will you run a wine club? Eventually, again, yeah. I, these are all things that just as we uh, op- as we get open, yeah. um, you know, we'll increase our bandwidth. Uh, you know, wine clubs are fantastic, but they do take a lot of labor. 
So as much as they are, they seem convenient. There, there is some uh, quite a bit of work that you got to put into them. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So one last sort of topic for us to chat, chat about, which is hybrids. Sure. So you know, two of these wines are made with hybrids. Um, I'm de- we're definitely you're definitely seeing that more and more. But I feel like there is. I don't want to say a bias, but like some people just don't understand hybrids, right? It's like, oh, so like it just doesn't mean it's not as good as, you know, your, your hybrid uh, randomly at Faujolais, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, is it as good as Gamay, you know, or like, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you use real grapes? I hear yeah. some people say, talk to me about hybrids. Like what gets you so excited about hybrids? And do you think uh, eventually we're just not even going to care whether it's a hybrid or a conventional or whatever grape? Yeah. I think that's already starting to happen. Yeah. Um, a lot of this comes down again to, to access, you know, so Mm -hmm. if you're a young winemaker, you're, you're right out of, it's funny, like just from my sort of network, people from California will, will write to me and say, Hey, I'm, I'm thinking about moving back East and, you know, uh, you know, tasting all this great Cap Franc and, and Chardonnay and stuff like that coming from coming from New York, and I man, I love to make some wines that have that level of acidity, and and uh, you know we can't we can't really do that out here, you know. But you guys you guys have that climate, and it's like unfortunate. I'm like man, well, like as a brand new winemaker coming to this region, I don't know how much Cab Franc and Pinot Noir you're going to be able to get. It's just you know the the wine the growers that have that stuff they have long standing contracts yeah. with wine with other wineries and and things like that so a lot of it's just like what can you get so in the case of Fogelay you know I really wanted to make a wine from the Hudson Valley with Hudson Valley grapes so I just started calling around to see what fruit I could get and I was offered Dishonic which is uh, the red grape in that um in that wine, which is an, another one of the early sort of uh, European American hybrids, it's I think it's technically a French American hybrid grape. Although it came, I want to say through Canada, and I always forget if uh, the Dachonic w- was sort of created in in Quebec or or in France. I need I need to study study up, but um, certainly of v- there is vinifera in that mm-hmm. grape, and then whatever the cross was to make Dachonic planted widely in the seventies. Okay, um, and. Uh, a winemaker who actually the, the, the winemaker who made our, our pet nap, Ben Riccardi, mm-hmm. he made a Deshaunic in the Finger Lakes that I tasted and really, really liked. And he shared his winemaking technique with me, which was you take it and you, you know, make it however you're going to make it and then add viniferous skins to your ferment or to your aging process so actually, like- to add tannin because these red hybrids, what they struggle with is they don't have enough tannin. Why? Something in the in the genetic crossings or, or the you know the uh, in the breeding of them. I don't I don't want to speak too scientifically because I just <laughs> I don't have those answers. But what I do I love know, that you admit that you don't have the answers. <laughs> <laughs> takes takes a very a, a person very confident to say that. So <laughs> thank you. So where do you get then the skins? Like hey, so like have any leftover skins? Well, so he's <laughs> he was making char- a lot of Chardonnay for himself. So okay. he used in that case it doesn't really matter what you he used Chardonnay skin. Oh, interesting. And so he added that. To to his ferment and the wine came out just this like snappy glue glue you know light red that everybody loves right now mm-hmm. and so i was like okay well i got i got my hands on some deshaunic grapes from the hudson valley and let's let me just get some some leftover vinifera skins so i got gamay skins from a winery called white cliff they were very generous gave me their skins and those went into the to the ferment and and the wine is beautifully structured now. that's super cool 
Wow, that's really cool, Paul. Yeah, super useful, uh, you know, technique. Because I guess, could you have gotten the tans if you had also thrown in all of like the, you know, the stems and things like that, or just wouldn't have done the same as with the skins? It, not if they were from the the hybrid grape. Just because not the same as been, vinifera. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you so could throw in, uh, you could have thrown Cap Franc skins, Pinot Noir skins. What it doesn't necessarily really matter, but I do think those Gamay skins also gave sort of a Gamay like flavor and structure. That's so cool. So, okay, so you have this one, mm-hmm. and then you're also making, obviously, a pet nat yeah. with, uh, the grapes are what, Lean Milo? Leon Mio. Leon Mio. Yep. Marquette and Cap Franc. So Cap Franc being the, the non. Tiny bit of Cap Franc. Um, wow, interesting. So, again, these from the Finger Lakes now, but hybrid. Yep, so now we're up in the Finger Lakes. So, again, what, what do we have access to? What can we get? So there was a grower who had Leon Mio and, mm-hmm. and Marquette. And I had had some wines from the Leon Mio grape that I quite like. Ian Barry makes a delicious pet nat from Leon Mio. Mm-hmm. Um, Lake Vineyards makes a still wine from Leon Mio that, that I really enjoyed in the past. Um, and then the Marquette grape, of course, is um, sort of pretty new and exciting. University of Minnesota. Um, a lot of fine examples of that. And that's, um, you know, that's a newer hybrid, so it struggles a little bit less with that whole uh, lack of tannin. So cool. So, I mean, all together you're doing four to five wines, really interesting with hybrid grapes, and then obviously non-hybrids. This is dope, man. And this Thank is all you. from sort of your career on the floor to, yeah, bug dope. It's bug dope. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is all from your career basically on the floor. through. I mean, it's, it's just amazing to see how everything, as I said at the beginning, like everything you've done sort of led you here. It's really cool. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, we're, we're really excited to, to, to be, uh, you know, about to open and, uh, and, you know, I can't thank these winemakers enough. You know, I should really shout them out. Um, uh, we talked about Todd Cavallo who made the red wine and Ben Riccardi, uh, his, his label's called Osmote, his own winery. And Todd is, his winery is uh, Wild Ark Farm in the Hudson Valley. The Mm -hmm. Rosé, um, which is mostly Blau Francish and uh, a bit of Cab Franc, a bit of Pinot Gris, Peter B. Craft, who's the winemaker at Anthony Road, I've loved his rosés mm-hmm. for a number of years now. So uh, that was a that was a really fun experience going up and doing the blend yeah, of the rosé. Cool. That was like one of the mo- that probably the most fun I've ever had in a cellar. Really? Yeah. Uh, and the, and then the white wine, um, Nathan Kendall, who's uh, been a dear friend for years now. Uh, he, he just makes these incredibly just bone dry, austere whites that like Psalms go nuts for. Yeah. So I love his wines. Yeah. Very cool. This is awesome. Well, Paul, where can people find these wines? Where can they find the tasting room? Yep. So we're, we're up in Beacon. If you're in New York city, it's a quick, uh, quick shot up, uh, the Metro North or, uh, you know, if you're, again, if you're coming from elsewhere, the Hudson Valley, I mean, you can, there are direct flights into Albany which is really convenient if you mm-hmm. want to visit the Hudson Valley. There's like Delta's got a flight from Detroit. There's flights from Chicago and probably elsewhere. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're easy to find. We're, our address is Main Street, but we're just off Main Street technically on Eliza Street. Um, but check our website, paulbradywine.com or Instagram at paulbradywine, and we'll, we'll announce our uh, – I hate the term soft opening – just your opening. It's like you're either opening yeah, or you're, you're close. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're calling it a quiet opening. <laughs> so just, just keep checking, uh, checking, checking the, the web stuff for, for, for our quiet opening. Awesome. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining me, and I, I can't wait to come up and check it out. Thank you so much, guys. Big fan of the pod. 
All right. Well, that was cool. What do you guys think? Paul's an interesting guy, man. I, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I feel like to, to sort of say, like, we're going to take on both the challenges of being a winery and a sort of wine bar restaurant. Like, I don't, does he sleep? Is your vibe that he sleeps? Is he not sleep? sleeps? No, oh, God. Sleeps. Yeah, I like sleep too much to do that kind of shit. I don't know. Kudos yeah, though, Paul. He's like a he's a hard worker, and then like to to be making the kind of wine he's making. So yeah. you know, a, a different collaboration wine with a different winemaker. Like, it's just like that's also that's a lot of work. That's a lot of management, Paul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I talk to a lot of different people, man. And you're trying to and you're trying to lift some uh, very unknown varieties up. Yeah, yes. so we got so we got some of his wines here, and we're gonna try them. Cool. Sounds good. I'm gonna pop some bottles. I didn't pre-pop. I'm, oh. Me neither. <laughs> oh, that's all right. It's Friday, man. Just I'm do whatever. Fine. You're good. You're good. It's almost the weekend. No one's, you know, no one's in too big of a rush. <laughs> no, no one's got anywhere to be, right? So what do you guys have? Tell me what you got. Well, Jenny, go first. So I have the rock and roll mouthwash. <laughs> Which is a pet? Like that's literally. Joanna, Joanna, can you, wait, can you can you say that a little bit more enthusiastically? <laughs> Sorry, hold on. <clears throat> I have the rock and roll mouthwash. Uh, there you go. Was that better? Um, it's a pet nat sparkling red wine. Uh, mm. I understand it's made in this like style of Lambrusco, but oh, old. It says on the back, old school French American red hybrid. Mm. And what else do you have? Um. Oh, I have another one in the refrigerator. <laughs> Should I get oh, it? Sorry, you have all of it's yours. It's cool. I pop the other two. It's fine. Okay. No, you don't have to. Okay. It's just a rosé, but y'all can, y'all can figure that out later. Mm-hmm. What's it called? Right, no one knows. <laughs> I'm so I'm like, Joanna. I should have gotten both. I'm so sorry. No, it's fine. How about you, Adam? What do you, what do you got there? Okay. So I got two wines from Paul Brady. Uh, one, which is called Fogelet. Mm. which is probably not $90 on a restaurant list. No, not. It's a hundred percent Deschonac old school. So it's a French American red high red. It is whole cluster handpicked, then goes through full carbonic maceration fermented with Gamay Noir skins and produced with his buddy, Todd Cavallo. Cool. Um, And then the other one I have uh, is bug dope. (laughs) <laughs> which is a non-hybrid wine. Uh, it is a white blend that is 62% convert Schmierner, 29% Riesling, and 9% Chardonnay. Bug Dope is what... So also Paul like is a big, uh, like really big... If you, if you, I mean, obviously you listen to the, the interview, but you know he's a really big proponent of New York State wine and sort of just up north wine in general. And he has a funny hashtag that he he has on um instagram says up, up north shit <laughs> sort of what he's always talking about and so he says that bug dope is up north shit parlance for insect repellent oh, um, <laughs> and he makes it with i think one of the most talented young winemakers uh especially definitely on the east coast if not in the, in the united states nathan kendall um nathan makes awesome wine very cool I'm j- I'm sorry that I can't try them, but uh, they, you'll have to describe them for me and the, oh, and the rest of the listeners. Okay, so I'm going to try the bug dope first. Yeah, and I'll I'll talk about the low action loud, which is the rosé as well. Um, it's made <laughs> it's made from I'm reading the the description made from the bomb diggity 2020 vintage bomb in, co- in collaboration with master rosé winemaker Peter Beckraft of Anthony Road Wine Company. In the Finger Lakes, uh, it's mostly okay. Frankish. 
with a little caveat. So I'll tell you, first of all, the nose on the bug dope is dope. It's really like... But it does not smell like insect repellent, I hope. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's okay. an interesting choice, Paul. We need to talk to you about why you'd want to name your wine an insect repellent, but that's a, it's a whole other conversation. Yeah, the wine's awesome. Cool. Well, you both know that I'm a I'm a strong believer in the potential for hybrid varieties. Uh, this one's not a hybrid. Well, I it's, okay. Sorry, <laughs> I'm about to get to my hybrid wait. one, and then oh, okay. you can tell me how you're a stronger. So wait, so what is the so what is the bug dope made from? That? The bug dope is Gewürztraminer, Gewürztraminer, okay. Riesling, and Chardonnay. Okay, okay, yeah, it's really nice. Cool. So I, I'm trying the rock and roll mouthwash now. Oh yeah, rock and It roll. is definitely closer to a Lambrusco than a Pet Nat. Okay. In terms of like flavor profile, but it's really delicious, really juicy. I like it. Okay, I'm going to Fojolay. <laughs> so it definitely smells like pickles, hmm. but like in a good way. Okay. Oh, like really strongly of pickles, hmm. um, but also really bright red fruit. <laughs> um, this is a hybrid. It has a really nice savory characteristic that I think. He says it comes from that that uh, Gamay Noir skin maceration. Uh-huh. It's a nice wine. It's fun. Like yeah, this is a really fun wine. Like again, these are fun wines. Like this mm-hmm. is a wine that I would see doing really well at his wine bar. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, you could just sort of have a few glasses of this. It's only ten and a half percent alcohol. Oh wow. Um, so you could have a few glasses of this and just kind of hang out with your friends and like meat and cheese board. Like this kind of is screaming to me. Like let's just get a bunch of cured meats and hang out. Um, maybe some cheeses uh, if Naomi's joining since she doesn't eat meat uh, but I like this a lot it's really good yeah cool these are great cool congrats Paul thank you Paul keep doing it both <laughs> of you I won't be here next week because I'll be on vacation yeah we will somehow somehow get through <laughs> no you won't no you won't we're just not going to do the podcast no. sorry folks yeah I mean it's going to be really hard for all of you guys I mean, like for sure, you guys are going to definitely, definitely not have. How am I going to know it's the weekend? I won't have you to tell me it's Friday. Oh, yeah, sarcastic motherfucker. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, but you two enjoy, and I'm going to be on vacation. And yeah, I'll you enjoy that. Yeah, that's yeah, and I'll see you back here a week after. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, Vine Pair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the Vine Pair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.